Well, yeah, you can sit, man. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, me and Courtney, my wife, were kind of a mess, like a, like a, a lot of those songs, like just to see, you know, a couple years ago, this was just a dream that a few of us had, and now like, you know, there's like people here to hear the gospel and praising Jesus in like this, really, y'all were like, yeah, some energy this morning. So praise God. So welcome to Redemption City, man. I'm so glad each of you is here. I love each of you. I want to get to know you. I want to meet you. This is Jesus' church. And I really think, I said this last week, I really think we can change the world together. And so come with us, man. Come next week. Come the next week. And then come the week after that. All right. So please turn or scroll in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, if that helps you. So we're going to look at part of a sermon that Jesus himself preached uh, a couple thousand years ago. So, you know, for the past few years, hashtag blessed has been kind of a thing on social media. You're aware of that. So somebody, you know, somebody will post something about their life and, and then write that they're hashtag blessed when really they're just kind of hashtag bragging. Amen. Okay. So someone will post a picture of themselves on a lavish vacation, pursed lips, and then they'll throw that, you know, the kind of slap blessed on it as if they're giving the glory to God. You know, it's all about him. I'm here in Italy on the, on the beach and it's about him this morning. Okay, you know, I actually brought a few pictures uh, of you guys doing this. Uh, just kidding. I, I wouldn't do that to you, all right? But y'all be doing it for sure. So we'll see today that Jesus, and you know, I've done it too, okay. We'll see today that Jesus says how to really be blessed, okay? Uh, you can understand in our text today in Matthew chapter five, this word blessed, it, makarios, in the original text is really close to our idea of happy, our word happy, so it's a really close idea. And happiness is the great subject facing mankind, right? Everybody everywhere would like to be happy, no matter who they are. And the past year and a half, I understand, has been a little weird, okay, been a little tough, but we're in, a, in an age of global financial prosperity, and compared to every other point in the history of the world, more opportunity than ever before, more technological advancement, more comfort, yet research, study after study, shows that Americans are less happy than generations before us. Forbes magazine, uh, magazine uh, for you Gen Zers, it's like, it comes in paper, it's online kind of now too. Anyway, Forbes magazine they, for their 75th anniversary issue, uh, they dedicated it to this subject. Why do we feel so bad when we have it so good? Why? So every person's looking for happiness, and it's really sad to watch a lot of the ways that people go after that happiness. Most people are seeking happiness in ways that actually produces misery. People want to be happy, but the ways they go after it, it, that's not the way to do it. So, and that's where the true deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always offering happiness, looks really shiny on the outside, but sin always delivers unhappiness and emptiness. Sooner or later, I promise you it does. So, but here in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to show us, here's the way. Here's how you can be happy, true and lasting happiness. Have any of you heard of Edward Bernays? I can't believe that. It's crazy. So, uh, Edward Bernays, he shapes and influences things that you think every single day. He published his book, his you know, kind of seminal work in 1928 called Propaganda. That's the actual title, okay? And so this book has been called The, the Manual for Mass Manipulation, okay? Uh, Bernays is often called the father of public relations. Uh, one magazine recently called him uh, the original influencer, okay? So Bernays' clients back in the day, you know, early 1900s, CBS, Procter & Gamble, GE, uh, President Calvin Coolidge, maybe you heard of him, uh, the American Tobacco Company, and a lot of other kind of heavy hitters. And so Bernays' uncle was Sigmund Freud. We've all heard of Freud. And Freud said, you may have heard back in the day, but Freud said that we are run by our unconscious minds, 
Remember that from high school? Instead of our rational minds, we're run by our unconscious minds. So Freud saw that we're far more susceptible to self-deception from the inside and manipulation from the outside than we would ever dare think or really even want to admit. And so the Nazis were really the first ones to really put Freud's uh, ideas into action. They built this great, well, great as in big propaganda machine. I'm against Nazis just for the record, okay. So they built this huge propaganda machine and Bernays, the book guy, he was an an intelligence officer in World War I. So he saw firsthand the Nazi propaganda machine. And then after the war, he comes home and he's like, I wonder how those ideas would work during peacetime over here. And he went to Madison Avenue with the madman and now he's known as the father of modern advertising, okay. So modern advertising today, thanks to Freud, thanks to Bernays, it appeals, all appeals to our unconscious minds instead of our rational minds. So here's what it looks like. So one of, uh, it's a true story, one of Bernays' clients was Dixie Cups. Remember Dixie Cups? Like little disposable. So, a rational advertisement would be, hey, buy these cups, and the next time that you have a party, you don't have to do dishes. Okay, cool. And it, but Brene's knew, like, doing that, that's not really going to make us go 100x. That's not going to do the trick. So he created this whole propaganda thing to where he made Americans believe that the only way to be sanitary was to use one-time-use cups. And if you, use any, if, you, if you reuse cups, that's really unsanitary and unsanitary which is not true. It's propaganda. He was appealing to the fear in Americans' unconscious minds, and it worked like a charm, man. Dixie cups flew off the shelf, okay? So what modern advertising intends to do is to use our unconscious minds to make us buy stuff and believe stuff and do stuff, okay? So um, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers wrote this. We must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And that's where the advertising began. That was in 1955 to begin 1968. Excuse me, the next quote is from 1950. So the advertising started to go that way, to shape our minds in this way. In 1955, a prominent article by Victor Lebo said this. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals. Black Friday, Prime Day, okay. Um, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions. Listen to that. That we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today express in consumptive terms. Commodities and services must be offered to the consumer with a special urgency. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, drive, live with an ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. That was in 1955, and now it is the air that we breathe. Uh, We see an average of 5,000 marketing messages every single day, all promising to deliver happiness and satisfaction in really creative ways. And it's all the more curated and sophisticated now with Google's algorithm, with Facebook and Instagram tracking our every like. You know, a lot of people think that uh, Facebook is listening into our conversations and that's how they can do such great, but really they're so good at tracking everything else that we do that they know what we're going to talk about even before we talk about it. So... We're sold all the time in a way that we can hardly even keep up with, myself included. We're sold that we need to travel, to buy, to eat, to not eat, to consume more and more and more. And that messaging is curated and crafted so well that I think we've come to believe it. So, how can we have and build a really blessed life? How can we really be happy? So, that's the, the title of my sermon today is How to Be Happy. 
I'd like to know the way. So look at, let's read Matthew 5, 1 to 9 together, and that's what Jesus exactly is going to show us. And so, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and, disciple, and the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught people, saying, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So it's fitting and those few statements that Jesus made, that's part of a larger sermon. But it's fitting that blessed are the poor in spirit comes first because it's really essential to all that follows. Being poor in spirit is an essential thing for a Christian and it's vital for your happiness. So being poor, being poor in spirit really means an emptying, okay? The call of Christ is first to empty yourself. Being poor in spirit has everything to do with being humble in spirit. Um, the Christian life is one of humility, right? And we're often known as not humble people, but at, at its core, we're, we're supposed to be really humble people, right? So it's really about realizing that I really don't have it all together, but Jesus does, that I really am a sinner and he really can save me. That's the core of who we are. So as we talk about being poor in spirit, we're not talking about being like Eeyore. Y'all remember Eeyore? My guy from Winnie the Pooh, the homie, Eeyore. And so, you know, he was always just kind of down, Always kind of moping, right? That's not being poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means to be lacking in pride. That you empty yourself and you fill yourself with God. That you realize that Jesus really is everything. That he owns the joint and we're his kids, right? And so it's about him. And that attitude, man, is directly opposite of what the world preaches. To be humble is to stand in opposition of what the world is preaching to you. We took our kids to uh, Disney World earlier this year. We had a blast. We were there for New Year's Eve. We're Disney people. Okay, we love it, we go. And so we were there, so one night we saw this like amazing light show. You know, there's like a narrator that like talks you through it kind of thing. And the narrator ended this epic thing, this, this light show, his last thing that he said was, you're the key to unlocking your own magic. I was like, dang, I don't, I don't think I have that in me. Now, what a burden, man, to, to unlock my own magic. I don't think I have that. All we hear in the world is believe in yourself. Express yourself, realize the power within you. But then Jesus comes and he says, empty yourself and believe in me. Put the weight of your life on me. If you're here and you're apart from Christ today, man, if you want those shackles tightened, believe in yourself. But if you wanna break free from the chains, believe in Jesus. Believe in God instead of putting the weight of the world on your own shoulders. Here's what leads to true and lasting happiness, emptying yourself and being humble in spirit, okay? And that realization that we're nothing without Jesus, it doesn't make you hang your head, but it actually makes you lift your head. Uh, the world says, hey man, you got this, you can do this, but then Jesus says, I got this, I got you. It's a totally different way to live. And so think about it too, of the people you've observed in your life. Who's happier, prideful people or humble people? 10 times out of 10, it's humble people. And so the way of the world leads to exhaustion. That's where that river always leads. And so the way of Jesus leads to freedom and life. So one observation we have from the text today is to be happy, I need to pursue humility. I must embody the humility of Christ. See, in, in God's kingdom, the happy people are the ones who are humble. And you know, you know what is the most exhausting thing in the universe? Proving to people how you got it all together. Proving to people that you really are the man, how put together your life is, or the woman, okay? Proving to people how cool or self-reliant you are. In God's kingdom, that's not needed. 
You don't have to do that. You admit your shortcomings, admit your sins, and give it all to God. It's this amazing thing. As the, old, as the old hymn, Rock of Ages says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. That's how God's kingdom works. It's really not about us, and that really is a good thing. So, all right, so, so what does true humility look like in a look-at-me world? Like, how do I pursue humility in a self-centered society, preaching all these different things to me? How, how in the world do I not buy into the 5,000 marketing messages every single day telling me that consumption and pride is the way, and then instead believe that Jesus is the way and relying on him with my life? All right, look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The wording in verse four is so striking to me. Happy are those who mourn. That kind of confused you just for a second there. The mourning that Jesus is talking about is a spiritual mourning. It's, it's having sorrow over your sin. It's this idea of your soul being pressed, okay? Jesus says that those who feel and sense sorrow over their sin, they will be comforted. Have you come to a place in your life where you mourn over your sin. You know, uh, and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but one of the frustrating things, uh, one of the frustrating statements that I have to endure as a pastor is when people say something like, you know, I don't have to regret anything I've done because it made, the choices that I've made have made me who I am today. I don't regret any of that stuff. It made me who I am. It drives me nuts. All right, because on the surface, all right, that statement seems like you're declaring freedom, but what you're really doing is ensuring bondage. What society says is having no regrets means total freedom, but Jesus died to take the guilt of your sin. He can really actually free you, and he doesn't want to make you feel bad. He wants to free you from that guilt that you feel for sure. So you can't excuse your own sin, but Jesus came to forgive it. And he actually loves, it's kind of his thing. He loves forgiving people of their sin. So when you try to forgive your own sin, it's actually not forgiven. Hate to tell you that, but uh, those who mourn over their sin, those who repent and turn from their sin, they will be comforted. Um, Jesus wants to take your sin on himself and comfort you and give your soul true rest. That's what he wants for you. That's his heart for you. So, so much of that the world preaches is, you know, regret nothing, don't be sorry for your sin, forget your troubles, move past your mistakes. Uh, you know, you, but you can't just sweep that stuff under the rug. That's not how you were created to function. It seems like a freeing message, but it is not. So sin's real. It has devastating consequences, both personally and all around us, and we need to repent from our sins, Christians and non-Christians alike, to step into Jesus' blessed and happy life. So, and the great promise is right there. Those who mourn will be comforted immediately without qualification. He doesn't say, the people with these sins, they can be comforted immediately. If you've done this stuff, though, you're gonna, it's gonna take a few Sundays in church before I really make you feel better. No, nothing like that. Repent of your sin and you will find hope, forgiveness, joy in Christ. So from this verse, we see that to be happy, I need to mourn my sin. It's, it's essential in this life. So the sinner's sorrow will be replaced by joy in, God, in, the, in the joy of God's presence. The sinner's mourning for his sin, her sin, will be replaced by the praise of the God who saved him. Um, it's not mourning for mourning's sake. Again, it's not to make you feel bad. It's about restoration, relief, comfort, uh, and forgiveness. It's about happiness and joy. When you confess your sin to God, church, you don't get what you deserve. Okay, in God's kingdom, one sheep gets more attention than 99. One-hour workers, there's a story in the Bible, get paid the same as 12-hour workers, okay? A widow's pennies are worth more than huge sums of money in another story. Grace is terrible math, all right? So admit your sin and enjoy the comfort that God's grace brings. Um, 
and the Bible says also, when you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you every sin. All of it, man. And, uh, and he's willing to heal you. Look at verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So don't understand that, you know, meekness is not weakness. We don't use that word a lot, meek. Um, Jesus was meek, but he was pretty confrontational, right? He, he flipped some tables in the temple. He called some pastors uh, snakes, you know. So he, he went at people sometimes. Meekness does not mean passive. It's not being a pansy. Meekness is, a meek person is very confident, but the confidence is in God's strength. It's this humble confidence in who he is and what he can do instead of in your own confidence, like the world preaches. So a meek person, as verse 12 is gonna say later, can be slandered, torn down, and not even try to get even with the other person because we have this quiet, humble confidence residually in our hearts. And so somebody can talk bad about you behind your back. You don't even have to slash their tires, okay? You can pray for them. You can love them because you are meek, right? Y'all been there. Okay, so as the old saying goes, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself just less, Right, so meekness is to be emancipated from self-concern. Uh, and each of these characteristics, notice as we look through what Jesus says, they're not natural in us, right? I'm not naturally meek, okay? Uh, we, we are not naturally humble. We are naturally high and mighty. So Jesus' sermon here, it's to put your faith in Jesus and then Jesus lives it out of you, okay? So this sermon that Jesus is doing here is not a try harder to be better sermon, it is a surrender and follow me sermon, okay? Uh, and I want you to see Jesus' progression here too. The first two being humble in spirit and mourning over your sin have to do with the inner self, begins to change your heart. And then Jesus turns outward into how we treat others. So he changes us from the inside out. A lot of times we start out here hoping to change that way, but Jesus has got to do some renovation on your heart before he can change all this stuff out here, right? So let me talk through verse seven before we come back and land the plane on verse six today. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, so for they shall receive mercy. Uh, merciful, you know, it's being quick to forgive. It's being compassionate. We talked about mercy last week. If you wanna go listen to that sermon, we looked last week at how mercy in my heart, it produces all this great stuff to me, to my church, to my city. So Jesus says, the merciful will receive mercy. So I, don't, I don't mean to brag this morning. I, I drive a 2010 Toyota Avalon. Blessed, okay, okay. Uh, and before I got that car a few years ago, I don't think I'd ever seen another Avalon. I don't think I'd ever noticed one. But then what happened the day that I got it? They're everywhere. There's nothing, the same color, same make and model. It's like all of a sudden a world of Avalons were submitted to me, okay? And so they were there before, I just didn't notice them. Once I got a new perspective, I started seeing things differently, right? I think mercy works that way. Like all of a sudden we start showing people mercy and we're like, whoa, God's everywhere. God's mercy is abundant, right? So, you know, fall 2019, maybe we were a little, you know, we didn't really appreciate being able to go to a live football game, you know, but now if we go to a football, I think we're gonna get to go to a live football game this fall, we're really gonna appreciate it because we see it all around us. It's this great experience. Go Cowboys, number one, this is the year, okay. Um. I was talking to some folks earlier. This is grand opening day. A lot of you are new to us. So as you kind of get to know us, we are a Dak church. Okay, Dak Prescott's our quarterback. Amen. We pray for him. We love him. Go Cowboys. Okay. I expect more amens. Okay. So once you start to see God's mercy, the point is, bring it back, come back, you realize that it's everywhere. As you enact mercy, as you live in Jesus' way, you begin to see Jesus' way all over the place. So look at verse six as we head home here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be 
satisfied, man. If, if you underline in your scriptures, underline that word satisfied. Um, hunger and thirst are metaphors for this really intense longing. Th- these metaphors we kind of miss it a little bit. They're not quite as meaningful for us because at, at this time in this place, none of us have really experienced hunger like they have. The word that Jesus uses here is actually one that you would use for people who are going through a famine, this intense hunger, this thirst that you would do anything to get on the other side of. And so Jesus wants us to want righteousness the way that a starving person wants bread. That's what he wants in our hearts. And so it was so intense. He says that the people who hunger... And thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. What an idea. And so, but you know, people who hunger for their way, okay, who thirst for likes on Instagram or more convenience or whatever it is, more money, will never be satisfied. We look so many places for satisfaction, man. Do you ever get enough money? Were that affair really do? Will it really satisfy? Were more Instagram followers finally fill that hole in your heart? Um, You know, there's a company in Russia that you can rent a private jet for three hours. Never take off, but in three hours, you can take pictures of getting on the plane, and then actually on the plane, like sipping a drink or something, and then getting off the plane. For Instagram, people are doing this. They're paying all this money just to appear like they're on a private jet. And I, I would venture to say they're no happier after that than before. I would definitely be emptier after that situation, okay? So, or, you know, so many of us Christians, we try to satisfy our souls by doing good things. We try to do the bake sale and do this and all these kinds of things just to feel better, but moralism just hands starving people a cookbook, man. So we're all looking to be satisfied. We all are. Americans too, you know, we're, we're the people of excess, amen? Uh, we don't want a good meal, we get stuffed. We don't watch one episode, we binge the whole show in a weekend. That's who we are. We are the people of more, looking for that next thing that really, I heard of a story, I heard a story of a wealthy employer, and you know, so he was overhearing a couple of his employees talking, and one of the employees said, man, if I could just have $10,000, I would be perfectly content. I'd be, man, I'd just be totally happy. And the employer had a ton of money, and he goes, okay. And so he walks over there, hands the guy a check for $10,000, and says, I've always wanted to see somebody who's totally happy, and gives him the check for ten grand. The guy walks off and goes, shoot. Man, why didn't I say 20,000? gone. that would have been, that's us though. We're always looking for that next thing to finally fill that hole in our hearts. Uh, that's the way it works. And did you know that the New Testament has 112 references to being blessed and none of them are tied to material prosperity? Maybe we're looking to the wrong things to satisfy. Maybe. Um, there's this term in psychology that happiness researchers, which how about that for a job title, okay? But there's this term in psychology that happiness researchers uh, called the hedonic treadmill, okay? They found that the more people do something, the more they need of that something to deliver a temporary good feeling. So you get 10,000 Instagram followers and you find yourself wanting 15,000. You get a raise at work and you find yourself wanting one more raise. All these things, you just want more and more and more. We keep looking to these things to satisfy us, but they're only making us hungrier and thirstier. You know, the the world preaches, man, live for yourself. Go get rich, sleep around, do what you want to do. But what we see over and over and over again is that that way to live leads to death and despair. But if you choose Jesus, you get life because he is life itself. So my granddad was my home church pastor, my hero, my guy. And uh, his favorite hymn was As the Deer. I don't know if you ever heard that song, but it goes, the, the, the chorus goes, I'm not gonna sing it, I'll read it, okay? It, it goes, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Jesus, you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship thee. Folks, that's happiness. 
right there. Not longing for more this or that, but thirsting for God. Not longing and hungry for money, but thirsting for Christ. That's happiness. So from that verse we see, to be happy, I need to pursue holiness. And that's not what the world is gonna show you to to be happy, but that is Jesus' way, and he created the world. So you wanna be happy, then live in the way of Jesus. Be generous with the money you have, be patient through adversity, be kind through your stress, and all of a sudden you'll be satisfied, the Bible says. Also, importantly, the only application today, if you're not a believer, is to become a Christian, okay? Um, You can't add Jesus' teachings onto your life in your own power. I tried that, okay? If if he's not in you, it, it can't happen. So you're first connected to Jesus, and then he begins to change your character, and then it all kind of comes out in your conduct. You see the progression there? So you need Jesus to live in Jesus' way. It's kind of an important thing to not skip. So Jesus rose from the dead and he conquered sin, hell, the grave, and invites us into his better way. He can give you a new life. He can give you a fresh start. He wants to save you. 